0: The honeymoon is over. Joseph and the Pharaoh who promoted him to astral heights among Egypt's ruling elite are long dead. Now, the descendants of Joseph and his 11 brothers are languishing as forced labourers on construction sites in the Nile Delta. With life now unbearable in the land which they have called home for centuries, the Israelites desperately need an exit plan. The Bible's second book details exactly how they make their escape. As such, Exodus is an enormously positive read. It charts the life and adventures of a Jewish man who grows up in an Egyptian palace and who is tasked by God to liberate an entire nation from slavery in North Africa. This man is Moses and even his name is Egyptian. It comes from the same root as Ramesses. Exodus follows the incredible lengths to which God appears to go in order to release his people and charts the Israelites' extraordinary midnight dash to freedom. Anyone who has watched the Hollywood epic, The Ten Commandments, knows that Moses meets God on a mountain and returns holding the 10 fundamental rules for life on earth, etched into tablets of stone. Further rules follow, creating a lull after the adrenaline of the escape. Among these are a blueprint for a worship tent known as the Tabernacle, arguably the most fabulous portable building ever imagined. Exodus is repeatedly quoted in other books in the Bible as evidence that God keeps his promises, loves his people and successfully rescues them from their enemies. There's a palpable sense of optimism in the book that God is about to finally lead his people into the land he promised to Abraham and that he is genuinely on their side. The future appears to belong to the people of Israel. All nations will fall before them and only a complete failure to trust God can possibly get in their way. Interestingly, at 430 years, the gap between the end of the book of Genesis and the start of the book of Exodus is the longest unchronicled time period in the Bible. The book's next longest downtime is the 400 years between the final full stop of the Old Testament book of Malachi and the first letters and gospels of the New Testament. As with Genesis, it's not certain who wrote the book of Exodus or when. Originally, the belief was that Moses wrote the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch. By the end of the 19th century, this view had become decidedly unfashionable, especially as there were repetitions and alternative versions of the same events across the five books, suggesting multiple authors. The general consensus is that the unknown hand or hands that penned the book of Exodus completed their final draft sometime in around 400 BC. Greek geeks will know that exodus literally means the road out, ex means out of and hodos is road or way. At the time that Joseph walks the corridors of power in the royal court of Egypt, the calm, easy-going vibe of the 12th dynasty is well underway. Egypt is divided into the upper and lower kingdoms and the upper kingdom which includes the lush crescent of the Nile Delta is ruled by the Hyksos Pharaohs. It's a peaceful place and the tribes thrive in their new home. Exodus describes how the descendants of Jacob who settle in Egypt multiply dramatically and that the land fills with people who are related to this man who also went by the name of Israel and who are known as the Israelites. By the time of the 18th dynasty, some four centuries later, the mood has changed dramatically. The Hyksos pharaohs have been driven out and Egypt is united once again. This is bad news for the Israelites and despite having lived peacefully in Egypt for generations, they are now looked at with deep suspicion. Pharaoh is worried that such a large minority might join his enemies in a war and begins to see the Israelites as a threat to national security. The Golden Age is over. The Israelites' privileged status is lost, and they are now treated as cheap labour to be used on the ambitious construction projects of pharaohs like Thutmose III and Amenhotep II. They work under Egyptian slave masters, constructing the northern cities of Ramses and Pithom, but somehow still manage to produce large families. This is what leads to Egypt's leaders fearing them and seeing them as a threat that needs to be neutralized. Consequently, the Israelites are worked ruthlessly in Egypt's brickworks, on building sites, and out in the fields. In a relatively short time, their status swings from privileged guests to unwanted migrants. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, episode 15, A Boy in the River. Two of Holy Bible is upon us. Thanks for your support so far and thanks to everyone who spread the word evangelising about a podcast that isn't evangelising. Those new to the podcast should know that this is the Bible minus the religion. My belief is that the Bible is for everyone, not just religious people. The Bible I refer to is a pretty modern one, Zondervan's new international version UK edition. It comes with reference notes that have been enormously helpful. Now, Back to the labour camps of the Nile Delta. Pharaoh's fury that his country is overrun by Israelites makes him determined to stamp out these people once and for all. His plan to exterminate the Israelites is a crafty one. He approaches the Hebrews' two midwives and tells them that they must kill all baby boys born to Israelite women. A quick note... The Israelites generally refer to themselves as such, but in these early books of the Bible, foreign countries such as Egypt prefer to call them Hebrews. Unwilling to follow through on such a crime against God, the midwives continue to deliver healthy baby boy after healthy baby boy. This doesn't sit well with Pharaoh, who wants to know why they have defied his orders. The canny midwives spin a tale that Hebrew women are feistier than their Egyptian counterparts and manage to give birth before any professional assistance can reach them. Pharaoh buys the story and, according to Exodus, the midwives are rewarded by God by having children of their own. As a result of their actions, the Israelites continue to increase in number, but Pharaoh's hostility remains unabated he ups the stakes and puts in force a nationwide order that every baby boy born to an Israelite woman must be thrown into the River Nile. It's a terrible law, and when a man from the tribe of Levi and his wife give birth to a healthy boy, they have a tough choice to make, to kill their son or let him be killed. They hide the boy for three months, and when it becomes impossible to keep his existence secret any longer, they take a papyrus basket, cover it in tar and pitch to keep it waterproof, and set it afloat among the reeds of Egypt's great river. While the floating cot begins its journey downstream, Moses' sister Miriam keeps watch. Incredibly, the basket passes by a royal party from Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh's daughter has come down to the river to wash, and when she sees the basket among the rushes, she asks one of her entourage to investigate. Some people believe the girl is the famous 18th dynasty princess who becomes Queen Hatsheput. Inside his papyrus cocoon, Moses is crying, and Pharaoh's daughter takes pity on him. As a royal Egyptian, the princess knows the rule concerning baby Hebrew boys. But while she's working out what to do next, Miriam appears and suggests that she fetch a Hebrew woman to feed the child. Pharaoh's daughter thinks this is a brilliant idea, and in what has to be one of the cushiest deals in history, the girl fetches Moses' mother, who is paid by Pharaoh's daughter to look after her own child. All good things come to an end, and it really is a story of finder's keepers. Once the boy is old enough, he is handed over to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopts him. She gives him the Egyptian name Moses, which means, I drew him out of the water. She then brings her adopted Israelite son up in the royal palace, right under the nose of her Hebrew-hating father. Where Pharaoh thinks his daughter might have acquired a random child is a question the Bible neither asks nor answers. Forty years pass since Moses swapped certain death in a river for a life of luxury in a royal palace. Curious as to how the other 99.99% of Israelites live, he decides to watch some of the Israelite labourers in action he visits one of the construction sites where they are hard at work. Here, he witnesses an Egyptian overseer beating a Hebrew slave. Furious and seeing no one else around, Moses launches such a sustained physical attack on the Egyptian that the man dies. This view of events isn't shared by everyone, however. Muslims believe that Moses did not intend to kill the slave driver and that the man's death was from falling after being pushed. Still... Moses is keen to cover his tracks in case word gets back to Pharaoh. He hastily buries the body, but having seen what life is like for the Israelite workforce, his curiosity is piqued and he can't keep away. He returns the following day and this time he sees two Israelites fighting each other. Horrified, he intervenes. He asks them why one Hebrew would hit another, but the men see it as none of his business. One asks who made him ruler and judge over them. It's a moment of fabulous irony, as, spoiler alert, many Christians, Jews, and Muslims believe that Moses eventually meets God on Mount Sinai, walks away with the Ten Commandments, and leads Israel through four books of the Bible, making him the literal embodiment of the Israelites' judge and ruler. On the subject of giving away the end of the story, The Bible is absolutely riddled with spoilers, and this might be one reason that modern readers can struggle with it. Most chapters come with a headline that announces what's about to happen. Adam and Eve, it shouts, before either of them have been created. Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. Joseph sold by his brothers. This may remind readers of 19th-century novels whose chapters are prefaced with in which the happy couple embrace under an apple tree, move to London and embark on a journey to the Indies. Only in these books, the headers act more like nuggets of tantalising clickbait rather than a blunt statement of the forthcoming action. When one of the fighting Israelites asks Moses if he is going to kill him like he killed their Egyptian overseer, Moses is horrified. Yesterday's attack is clearly already common knowledge. He's right to be concerned. When Pharaoh hears what Moses has done, he sends out men to kill him. Clearly appreciating where this is going to end, Moses wastes no time in exiting Egypt and flees across the border to the land of Midian. With their base near the Gulf of Aqaba on the Red Sea, the Midianites are a feisty bunch of camel-riding nomads descended from a son born to Abraham, after the death of Sarah. Thanks to its border location, Midian makes an easy bolt hole for Moses when he realises that Pharaoh is after his blood. Once safely out of Egypt, Moses rests by a well. While he's here, seven sisters arrive to water their flocks, but are driven away by some shepherds who want the water for their own animals. Moses might be seen as a bit of a social justice warrior. He has intervened in an assault and a fight, and when he sees these bully-boy tactics, he steps in again and waters the women's flocks himself. Disruptions like the unfriendly shepherds are obviously a fact of life for the family, so when his daughters return from their mission so early, their father Jethro is surprised to see them. Jethro is described by the Bible as a priest. He's seen today as the father of the Druze, a religion that currently has one and a half million followers. When his daughters explain that an Egyptian helped them, he's amazed that they didn't bring someone as useful and kind home for dinner. It's not like the desert is filled with eligible young men and he has seven daughters. Moses is duly fetched and agrees to work for Jethro, who throws in one of his daughters, Zipporah, as a wife. The couple have a son named Gershom, whose name sounds like foreigner here, because Moses is keenly aware how far he is from home. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, there is a regime change. Pharaoh dies, but the situation for the enslaved Hebrews fails to improve. Exodus describes how the people cry out and that God not only hears their distress, he remembers the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to provide them with a homeland of their own. The narrative then jumps another 40 years. Now aged 80, Moses is still in Midian and is still dutifully looking after his father-in-law's flocks. The extreme age of some of the Old Testament's characters is one of the factors that give this part of the Bible such a credibility problem with numbers. Many who do believe try and look beyond the ages and dates. These seem to be somewhat movable feasts, and, even if the whole shebang is make-believe, they see the message and moral that God is to be trusted and has his people's best interests at heart as a useful one. Back in the story, Moses is leading his animals through a wilderness region, which Exodus describes as Mount Horeb. Horeb is synonymous with Sinai, and might simply mean the highland region in which this particular mountain can be found. While he's here, something out of the ordinary catches his eye. A nearby bush is burning, yet doesn't appear to be suffering from the effect of the flames. Moses is curious, and when he inspects this nature-defying phenomenon more closely, he hears what readers are told is the voice of God. The voice calls his name and warns him not to come any closer. He is to take off his sandals, as the ground upon which he is standing is holy, he is told. Moses has grown up in an Egyptian palace, distanced from the culture and worship of other Israelites. Since leaving his homeland, he has been living with a priest who operates in a completely different belief system. There is every chance that he has absolutely no idea who God is. To make it clear for him, God introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In awe of what he is seeing and hearing, Moses hides his face. God shares some information with him that seems wholly unconnected with his current situation. The Israelites back in Egypt are being oppressed to such a degree that God has heard their cries of distress and is genuinely concerned for their well-being. God then shares his plans to rescue his people and bring them into a spacious land that is flowing with milk and honey and which is currently inhabited by numerous Canaanite tribes. All of this is interesting if slightly irrelevant information to Moses until God shares the news that he is sending him to Pharaoh to negotiate the Israelites' release. Moses asks a quite legitimate question – Who of all people is he to tell Pharaoh what to do? God doesn't answer directly, but tells Moses enigmatically that he will know that the message is valid when he returns with all the Egyptian Israelites to this very mountain to worship him. With little, if any, idea of who God is, Moses wants to be completely clear who he should tell the Israelites has sent him should he undertake this mission. After all, if he tells them that the God of their fathers sent him and they ask this God's name, he needs an answer. It's a surreal moment. A shepherd in Midian is having a conversation with a God who, prior to the encounter, he may never have heard about. It may not even be certain at this point that Moses knows that he is an Israelite. With his privileged upbringing and on the run from manslaughter charges, he makes an improbable pick for the work which God has in mind for him. The question is, will he rise to the challenge? With the mass of Israelite slaves now at breaking point, does this exiled Jew who has raised a prince have sufficient empathy for a people who he has never lived amongst, whose language he may not even speak? The task ahead of him should he choose to accept is a daunting one, a mission impossible that seems destined to fail catastrophically. In order for Israel to have a fighting chance of surviving as a nation, Moses needs to leave his comfortable life as part of Jethro's family and step into the absolute unknown. The decision he makes is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook or send feedback to contact at holybible.com.